Welcome, guys, to the Education Portal podcast. And we are here with Mackenzie Baker, Jonathan Steedman, and Aidan Wire. And we are talking about fad diets uh, with the new year coming up. Uh, couldn't be a more pertinent topic. And hopefully, this conversation is one that's useful to all of you who may be following fad diets or have followed fad diets before and will help you better understand what to look out for uh, in fad diets and why they are potentially. Uh, harmful. So Mackenzie, I figured you could kick us off. What are the characteristics and features of a fad diet? Yeah, thanks for having me on the round table, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, okay, so maybe we could start off by defining what a fad diet is. Now, I looked through a bit of uh, the research and the general theme that I got was it's based upon trends, so it's trendy. So that's the first component. Uh, so trendy diet patterns known to be a quick fix. So a quick fix would be the second one for a long-term problem. Okay, so a trendy diet pattern known to be a quick fix for a long-term problem. Now, the opposite of the end, opposite end of the spectrum might be defined as a traditional diet pattern. And obviously that's a little bit vague, but the particular paper that I looked through cited the Mediterranean diet. Um, so yeah, I guess that kind of gives some characteristics of fad diets. So with that definition in mind, um, that quick fix solution, why is that attractive for a lot of people? Why, why is that something that um, people are pursuing as opposed to sticking to something that will take a little bit longer, but is probably more realistic and sustainable. Um, I would say because of the trendy aspect, um, that would probably be the primary driver in, in my opinion, at least, um, you know, something, someone they look up to does it, someone um, who they know does it. It sounds interesting. Um, it's kind of cutting edge, if you will. Um, it goes against the grain and, uh, you know, everyone wants to try and look for that magic pill rather than, you know, going through, I guess, the work. Um, so anything that can, can be like a quick fix, you know, a get rich quick scheme, if you will, uh, that will carry a greater degree of appeal, which, you know, is probably why fad diets consistently seem to be quite popular um, even these days. Perfect. And Jono, what do you think, uh, you know, a lot of the popular fad diets for the recent, I guess, year or upcoming year are going to uh, look like? What do they um, look like for the listeners? Uh, I worry that um, the carnivore style approach is going to continue to gain momentum. Um, I think that's probably, I'd say that's going to be the, the main one. Um, that we'll see more and more of, unfortunately, <laughs> fear of fiber, that sort of thing. <laughs> and how does that fear of fiber um, get such, you know, significant traction? Obviously, Liver King is a huge um, you know, advocate for the carnivore diet, um, despite his uh, recent downfall, um, <laughs> which I'm sure uh, we can probably get into uh, later. Um, but why do these diets gain so much traction when, Obviously, there's not a lot of logic or even research behind them. As Mackenzie mentioned, you know, it's that social uh, currency that they carry through, you know, the guise of some popular, um, 
you know, folk on the internet, but why do these diets um, get the attention when there's really no logic or research behind them? Um, I think there's probably a couple of key reasons why. I think one of the first ones is the countercultural sort of idea. You know, it's it's against the norm. It's different from what we know. And I think in a lot of people, there's everyone's everyone wants to hear that. They want to hear, you know, the one secret that doctors don't want you to hear, all those sorts of things. It's very, it's an appealing narrative. Um, I think as well, like in the case of the carnivore diet, it's been very well uh, engineered and portrayed by people like Liver King or Paul Saladino and that, you know, the ancestral approach, they've always got their shirts off, they're in good shape, you know, all of those things are, are very appealing. Um, I think for the carnivore diet, there's a lot of people looking for an excuse to not eat veggies anyway, and that's a, that's a good one. Um, and then there's probably the last thing is, I, I do think like with a lot of fad diets, there is that kind of initial period of time where people do see results quickly. You know, in the case of carnivore diet, it's almost certainly going to be a lower calorie diet than they've been eating, uh, you know, like chips and donuts and chocolate and ice cream don't fit into that. So all that stuff's going to fall away. They're almost certainly going to be eating more protein than they were. So they're going to see short-term benefits. And so they've got this community feel as being, I'm part of this kind of countercultural alternative dietary approach. Um, I don't have to eat vegetables and I'm getting results, you know, like what a win. Like, let's just forget about my heart health. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think my first introduction into the nutrition space was through a low carb diet. And you guys probably don't know this story, um, but believe it or not, Dr. Jake Lenarden was the one who introduced me into a low carb diet and avoiding carbohydrates <laughs> from 15, right? So no shit, right? One of the <laughs> primary and most prolific binge eating researchers um, in our time was the one who started that process of me going through a binge restrict cycle. Um, and there's no word of why we, we joke about this all the time. And it's probably the reason that um, I got into my line of work and he got into his, um, but essentially he got great results, eliminating carbohydrates or following a very low carbohydrate diet, lost a lot of weight. I was curious. And he told me, Hey, you know, carbohydrates, you, know, you just cut them out and you lose weight. And I saw the results he got, I got great results. Um, and you know, lo and behold, I was an advocate for a low carb diet, even so far as to, you know, social events and stuff. I'd say I was, you know, I had celiac disease so that I wouldn't get carbohydrates put on in my meal. Right. Um, but next point uh, I was trying to allude to there, um, which I'll get you to touch on Aiden is why aren't people more aware or why don't people learn from uh, their previous uh, attempts with these, these diets that although they might seem to produce quick results and you know they work for someone else, there's a lot of consequences that come down the track when you follow a fad diet. And do you want to speak to that, Aiden? There's, I don't know, there's a lot that goes into that too, because I've also seen people have successful weight loss attempts through a traditional, more traditional <laughs> approach. And then say they start regaining, I sometimes question, I'm like, well, why didn't they go back to a thing that worked for them previously? But that goes both ways as well. Like with a fad diet, like say somebody goes keto, they lose 15 kilos really quick and stuff like that. And we can look at it from the outside looking and being like, well, it's not a surprise that they had a lot of consequences with that. Maybe they, they regained weight. But in addition to that, maybe their gut health was a mess after that because they had such a low fiber intake and everything like that. But they can also focus on 
what was the positive that they got over that time frame? They might be like, well, I did lose 15 kilos. That did work. Maybe I'll go back to that thing. So I kind of, I see it through a place of empathy as well, but there is obviously a lot of flaws that come alongside it too. Yeah. And do you think that obviously like that, that bias to only see the positive in something that we've pursued like consciously, like we've made that decision to follow a diet. So we're not going to say, Hey, I was an idiot for following that. Like it didn't work. Look, I regained all that weight and lean into, well, Hey, I did lose weight. Do you think that that's something that people can change over time? And how would you change that? Because it's a huge issue. If you can't highlight to people that, Hey, the diet didn't really work because you regained the weight. Um, you might need a different, you know, approach or strategy. Um, but if you can't sort of reframe, you know, their perceptions of success, I think that's a huge issue. And that's where people just keep churning through, um, you know, these fad diets over time. Yeah. So in terms of like, in terms of how do we change people's perspectives and stuff like that, I, I very much practice in a motivational interviewing type of way where I, I think leading people to come to their own conclusions and stuff like that makes sense. Like I, I personally, nutrition comes very easily to me. So I like try to relate to people with other areas, right? I had knee pain for two years, really bad knee pain, saw multiple physios, didn't have much luck. I found an alternative practitioner. I'm not going to name him, pretty famous on Instagram, but, and I did his program. I still had knee pain at the end of it, but I clung on to the things that I was like, oh, well, this one exercise really helped me and stuff like that. And I look at it from another perspective of being like, what, what got me away from doing that kind of thing was slowly moving back towards more traditional physio things. But it's kind of like I had to come to that conclusion. If somebody at the time was like, oh, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> why did you fall for that thing? It probably wouldn't have worked for me. But if somebody's like slowly leading me towards those same kind of conclusions that make sense and make logical sense, it makes sense. Like, I, I think there's got to be a lot, a lot of logic, a lot of explanations, a lot of rational kind of decision making and everything like that but i think it's very hard to go from point a to point b in a like just a snap of the thing fingers and be like oh i was wrong now i'm going to change my perspective so i think there's going to be like a slow guidance kind of process towards a better approach yeah and i guess a part of that um education and helping people transition away from fat diets would be a huge emphasis on highlighting some of the negatives um you know to their physical psychological health uh, that come with following a fad diet. Uh, Mackenzie, what would some of those be if uh, you could outline those for the listeners? Yeah, so um, just before I get into that, just wanted to piggyback off what you guys discussed. By the way, can you see me? Oh, there was a fly on my screen. Whoops. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like I said, you like you know can't- You're attracted to, right? <laughs> no. You, you really have no idea what flies are attracted to. No, I actually don't shit oh, okay well then i guess my computer is a piece of shit which makes sense then um <laughs> you can't tell people what to do like people will you know need to come to their own conclusions um and often and even from my experience like aiden's that was through kind of learning and experiencing for myself but then i think from a practitioner perspective um socratic questioning is a big one where like you guys said highlighting the negatives okay so it worked for you in the past but you know you're back at square one now so do you think this is really the path that you want to take again and they might say well it worked for me last time you know i lost 10 kilos and this that but then it's like you know you start talking about well, what happened after that is this really you know what can you learn from that past experience so you don't experience these consequences that 
you um, you know do that again. So that brings me to some of the negatives of fad diets that have been reported. So the big one, which we've already touched on a lot, is maintenance issues. Okay, so fad diets tend to have short-term benefits only. Um, they're maybe not so aligned with long-term behavior change. And we've got to remember that long-term weight maintenance is a product of behaviors over time. You know, there's not really a habit building component. It's more like a, hey, you know, follow these rigid food rules for a bit and, you know, or follow this plan. And at the end of it, you know, like, you know, there's no guides, you don't know what to do. Um, and that brings me sort of the rigid food rules brings me to eating pathologies. So we've got that dichotomous all or nothing thinking. Um, and this kind of has been associated consistently with um, through intuitive eating, um, increased risk of things like binge eating or disordered eating, eating disorders, what have you. Um, and then we also have nutrition inadequacy. So when you have food rules, um, for example, in the carnivore type approach, we've got a, you know, don't eat carbs don't eat fiber uh, then we're basically eliminating whole food groups from the diet we potentially run into various sorts of diet insufficiencies if you will um, and that can even be total calories it's not just about things like fiber or micronutrients um, and then we also have the glorification of harmful foods or arguably harmful foods. I'm not going to say that as an absolute. Um, for example, bulletproof coffee, um, glorifying butter, all these sort of keto trends glorify a high saturated fat intake, um, which consistently probably isn't a good idea for long-term heart health. So um, yeah, numerous negatives. Um, just to recap, eating relationship, food relationship type situations, um, nutrition inadequacy and that causing potential physical harm as well as the risk of a hefty rebound. Yeah. And do you think that people can be warned of these consequences um, and deterred from following a fad diet um, in and of itself? Or do they actually need to go through that process and experience some harm? Because I, I think you can, as you uh, alluded to earlier, Aidan and Mackenzie, it's like you can't really tell people what to do. They're going to do it. Um, but obviously we have a duty of care as, uh, you know, practitioners to warn people against these kind of things. Um, in your opinion, guys, you know, anyone feel free to chime in here. Um, do you think that you can have a high degree of success um, just, you know, warning people, outlining those, um, you know, risk factors that Mackenzie uh, outlined? Um, or do they actually need to go through it themselves and figure it out over time? I, I think we can have success. Like an example that comes to my mind is, is smoking, right? So I've never, I've never smoked cigarettes. And that was partly because of warnings. If those warnings never existed, maybe when I saw other people doing it, I would have done it. Nutrition's obviously a bit of a separate kind of discussion, but there's also a lot of dumb things in nutrition that I personally haven't done because of warnings and stuff like that. So I think there's got to be some degree of success that can come with putting the information out there in advance, although people still will want to experiment and everything too. Same as smoking. Mac, what do you reckon? Um, I reckon that um, I would, again, agree with Aiden on this one. I think that warnings can help. Um, but for me, it's interesting. Like It's almost like going through one fad diet experience like when i first started in the fitness industry i was a receptionist at like a hectic poliquin gym you know it was the low carb boot camp <laughs> it was the week-long liver cleanse you know in the morning it was your apple cider vinegar with your warm lemon water and all this sort of you know it, it yeah and it's just like that one experience 
of that and all the negatives that I experienced from it, including disordered eating and like, you know, the whole schmozzle, um, that kind of led me to be warned about all the other fats. So it's like, based on that experience, there was no chance of me, you know, although I did try keto for a week, but, you know, more or less, there was no chance of me trying the carnivore diet later on. So I feel like one experience can have like a kind of um, reverberating or amplification effect on someone's view of nutrition and that it helps them realize logic. Like, you know, through this experience, I am now better equipped with a bullshit detector. I am now better equipped with logic. Um, so therefore, when XYZ, you know, brand new trendy fad diet comes up or the opportunity to, you know, take some weird succulent or something, I feel like even like all these other areas of life too, not just nutrition, mm. like, you know, these <laughs> six figure boss business coach thing trend that's blowing up. It's like the logic I learned from nutrition can be applicable to this and me realizing this is a total bunch of shit and I will not be paying any of those people, any of my hard earned, um, so yeah, I think that's all I'll have to say on that. One one thing I want to uh, pick out a little bit there, Mac, is I have uh, got to know you a little bit better over the last couple of months and obviously chat with you um, quite a bit. And you're quite a skeptical person and <laughs> you've got, uh, you know, a few brain cells, um, you know, between the noggin. And the yeah, I do. I do. Um, that's my compliment for the day. And um, I'm not quite sure that... Um, most other people are as disagreeable, skeptical, and have as many brain cells as you. No offense to anyone listening, but I think you know we all know that one person will have an auntie who every year at Christmas she's following another fad diet, and she doesn't. Oh. Right. So, uh, in those situations, what do you do with those kind of people? Because obviously, if someone's willing to change, learn, and grow, um, there are some people who just get stuck in that cycle of perpetually following fad diets and and they're the ones who probably suffer the most um, who need the most help so what's your um, advice there yeah so this is something that i've experienced many many a time um family members you know they're doing the infrared sauna oh it helps you lose weight they've spent the five grand or whatever and got the thing bloody installed in their house um you know following all the different diets what have you but i've also experienced in my travels you know traveling through indonesia to remote parts you go to these like surf destinations and you get sort of like these more hippie individuals who are like fucking the government this uh never trust that you know um they're all following paul saladino or whatever um and you just got to ask questions like you can't say you're wrong you're an idiot um even some bloke here where i am now is telling me that he did a test that says he doesn't tolerate carbs well and he does freaking keto unless he trains or something. I don't know. But you just, you never say you're you're a kook, mate. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You literally think you know more than like experts who have studied this their whole life. You don't, you're not going to tell them that because they're just going to create, you know, a gap or a, a resistance between you. And the same thing applies to a client. But like I said before, you know, um, for me, just asking questions. Oh, how does that work? Can you explain that? Interesting. Okay. So, you know, just asking all these questions that sort of make them go, I don't actually know what I'm talking about. Um, and they'll never admit to you in the moment, but at least it can start the train. I feel of like differentiating thoughts. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, there's not much you can do. And often it's better just to like smile and wave, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think changing people's belief systems is a very tricky thing. And um, one, uh, I guess, tactic that I've learned uh, has some utility uh, in these kind of situations is 
thinking of taking your ideas uh, into you know their belief systems like through a Trojan horse. So you know you've got to come in with the disguise of um, you know empathy, interest, curiosity, um, and then that opens the gates. That is the Trojan horse opens the gates you know through all those questions, and then once you're in there, you can start planting your seeds um, because they're going to trust you and um, you know you have that buy-in. Because I definitely agree that you can't just come out swinging attacking people's belief systems. Um, but I, one thing that's become obvious as we've had this conversation is the more and more time has gone on, the more that these fad diets are using science or some technical, um, you know, advancement to support their efficacy. Like, you know, with the doing a test to find out that you can't eat certain foods, this whole um, genetic testing diet and blood type diets and these kind of things. Um, what do you foresee to be the future of fad diets? Um, Aiden, Mackenzie, Jono, go for it. If anyone, I reckon Jono, got any predictions here? <laughs> I think the genetic personalized approach to nutrition is gonna, it's already taking off with like, is it Zoe or Zoe? Um, and the uh, Tim, that guy, um, it's already the uh, excitement exceeds the evidence big time. Um, and I think, because I think deep down, we all want to believe we're individual, like we're unique snowflakes and that kind of personalized nutrition stuff really speaks to that. And so people feel like, whereas we know there's like big key principles in the diet, which pretty much apply to virtually anyone. And yes, of course, the way that we apply those principles in the individual scenario might differ slightly, but it's unlikely that zucchini is going to be good for me, but bad for Mac, right? But we want, we want to believe that to be true because then we feel like our our diet is is perfect and really individualized and and then there's the 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 cost is so inv cost involved as well if i've paid a hundred bucks for a consult or i've paid fifteen hundred dollars for a genetic test i'm going to like that's human nature i'm going to ascribe more value and more legitimacy to that thing that i've shelled fifteen hundred dollars for um there's a bit of sunk cost fallacy as well like i'm going to ride that into the ground because i've spent so much money on it so i do think that personalized nutrition space has a lot of uh they've got great opportunities to <laughs> really uh make a lot of people hand over their hard-earned cash so that is probably next yeah. unfortunately yeah i agree uh aiden did you want to add to that i'll add on to that in terms of like what it comes back to the same thing of difficulty kind of navigating that thing like i'm going to use an example it's not the exact same example but igg food intolerance testing you go deep down the rabbit hole of evidence and you see that it's got a greater than 50% inaccuracy rate, as in it'll tell people that they're intolerant to food, so they're not intolerant to, but people have paid money for it. And something that Mac and I agree on, we're talking about like Socratic questioning, and that's kind of like asking questions to lead people to their own answers. And one of the tricky things navigating that is somebody who's paid for that obviously doesn't know it's inaccurate. We can't use Socratic questioning to kind of get them to come to the same conclusion. We've kind of got to provide some level of education about here is why it is inaccurate and that's a tricky thing to navigate particularly because they've paid money and really very much believe in the process yeah no I, I definitely agree when um those kind of tools fail to work um it can be even harder and especially if somebody doesn't have the understanding of the or the level of education required to make sense of what you're explaining to them um and that's a lengthy process like that's you know sometimes hours and hours and it's not um, something that can just happen you know in a conversation um but mac we um had a chat and um briefly spoke about how 
even things like if it fits your macros uh, is a fad diet. Mm -hmm. Um, and how a lot of people don't even realize this. So um, fad diets are pretty much anything with names. So why is something like if it fits your macros, which is generally um, not providing, it's not ticking all the same boxes as say, um, you know, the carnivore diet, right? It's it's missing a few uh, key elements to meet the criteria of a fad diet. Mm -hmm. But why do you think that falls under the uh, same umbrella? Yeah, so why do I think even if it's your macros or flexible dieting could potentially be classed as a fad diet? So first thing I want to say is that I'm not anti-tracking. I'm not anti-MyFitnessPal or anything. Yes, you, are. you absolutely are. All right, fair play. Um, <laughs> but I think, okay, so let's look at it. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. at least maybe 10 years ago, it was definitely trendy. You know, people went from meal plans and all of a sudden it's like, I can have Pop-Tarts. And, you know, nothing's off the table. And that's one good thing about flexible dieting is it removes the dichotomy around good or bad foods most of the time. But then sometimes you also create rigidity in that. For example, oh, I can't have nuts. Like almonds, bad. Too calorie dense, um, you know, they're off the cards. And then all fats are, are, are also bad as well. Um, so there's the trend thing. There's the potential for dichotomous thinking. Um, also, when it comes to adherence to targets, you know, I have to be two grams away from the target. Um, it's sort of like flexible dieting, but here's three numbers to live your whole life by. Um, and if I don't hit these numbers or if I can't track it accurately, you know, then I don't know how to eat and I can't stop myself from, from overeating. It's just like, you know, you hear things or see people say things like, Tracking's easy for me. Without tracking, I would just eat and eat and eat forever. And it's just like, this definitely shares that rigid type restraint approach, even though it is called flexible dieting. So for those reasons, I feel like it has characteristics of fad diets. Um, but I would, I would, I, I probably wouldn't class it as a fad diet. I'm just saying that it has characteristics that probably aren't too dissimilar. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and I guess one thing that, um, you know, I'd like to know from you guys is that when it comes to fad diets, if somebody's seeing success with a fad diet in, in their definition of success, um, would you get them to stop following that fad diet if it has um, you know, been proven to work for them in some way? Because there are some people who, you know, have had long-term success with fad diets. And, and why do you think that is? Any, anyone can jump in here. I'll jump in there. Um, oftentimes, no. Like oftentimes, I don't know, it's, it's tough to say, but like in a lot of cases, I wouldn't. It depends on the diet and stuff like that. I think I'll use keto as an example, right? Just because we know it's very rare for people to have great long-term success with keto. But there are people who exist, who do it, vibe with it, absolutely love it, massively has improved their quality of life, massively improved their health. Should I take that person away from that? I, I don't know, like, because could me taking them away from that make make them go backwards in many other ways? Um, could adding in more flexibility make them start over-consuming calories or a bunch of things, right? And it's a tricky, tricky thing because there is downsides that come alongside that, like using keto, using carnival, using whatever. We, we know using fiber as an example that there's a pretty linear line between increasing dietary fiber intake and long-term reductions in chronic disease risk and stuff like that. But the unique situation is it's like, what if that person has 
I don't know, lost a significant amount of body fat and has improved many markers of health in the process. Maybe they had type two diabetes and were on a lot of medication for that. And now they no longer need that medication and they're in remission and there's a bunch of stuff. So it's like, it's a case by case basis, but there are situations where I might just leave somebody doing their thing and not really try and guide them away from it. John, how about you? Yeah, very similar. I think it does depend on the fad diet that they're following. And so you're weighing up the, the risk versus reward, you know, and I think the ketogenic example is a really common one that I see. And I would say that a lot of the time I do like we continue a ketogenic approach, but within that you look to, can I increase your fiber intake as high as possible with, within the carbohydrate restriction? Can we increase dietary diversity? Can you, can we change the, the types of fats that you're eating? So, you, you know, it's more polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, like all of those sorts of things. So I think for a lot of people, um, well, it's even using that, you can use that as the Trojan horse as well of like, can I start sneaking in that stuff? And then, oh, your training quality suffering. Well, let's just have some carbohydrate before you train and let's see how you feel. And then all of a sudden, um, again, they are the ones that need to pull themselves out of that diet. But if, if I can start by providing them with little tools along the way, and then, and then maybe unpacking as well, um, why it works, right? So they don't believe it's this kind of magical alternative explanation versus all of the other reasons and if we understand the principles as to why that dietary approach works and then we can talk about how we can apply those same principles in other ways then they're sometimes maybe a little bit more open to to shifting it a little bit um but again it's very much like if someone's like oh juice cleansers just work really well for me that's not <laughs> like well we won't work within that space that's going to be a start by building cognitive dissonance start, you know and really trying to pull them away from there as quickly as they will allow but i do think there are certain fat diets that like paleo um there's that the risk is a is much lower for them to to be following that for a time so it's a it's a typically an easier starting point yeah no i agree i think there's certainly a spectrum of uh risk involved in various fat diets mac yeah, I think, um, you know, we have to display empathy, especially if someone has achieved great results with a particular type of dietary approach and they, you know, they're really bought into it. It's their thing. We've got to understand where they're coming from rather than trying to create conflict between them or kind of resist their, I guess, um, opinions on something. Um, but one thing to add to this is like, you know, often I guess the, best thing you can do as a practitioner or whatever you know it depends again on the on the diet like you said john like the nature of the fat diet if it's juice cleanses okay no no deal but if it's something like the paleo where the risks are relatively small you know often the best thing you can do is you know try and keep them safe and if you can try and like kind of sneak in a few additional benefits like changing the type of such type of fat content um trying to sneak in some fiber hey you know like what you said john you know oh, let's have some carbs pre-training and stuff you can kind of help someone shift over time um yeah but you you can't kind of yeah i think sometimes the the the, the most helpful thing you can do is just try and keep them safe and over the time let them come to their sort of own realization but one more thing i'll add is there are people like Aiden says who probably do say something like the keto long-term and again, like it vibes with them and the consequences long-term aren't that large. But I think in a lot of instances, people will say that this is great long-term, like it's working for me, 
but they're not really that honest about it. Or maybe they're kind of like brushing stuff under the carpet. Like, you know, for me, it's, it's flexible dieting tracking. People have like two, three, four year streaks on my fitness pal, you know, and their like whole life is governed by these three numbers, but they'll never tell you that their relationship with food is frankly fucked. Like they know it deep down. They know it's a bit cooked. They know that they're like fearful of fats. They know that they're making sacrifices in their life talk about like you know saying no to holidays you know experience a lot of guilt and trauma not trauma like anxiety around social meals but they won't talk about that because you know tracking works for me and it's it's like they're the thing that they will fight to the death about and everyone anyone who says otherwise it's like it's like game on sort of thing so um, I think that's one thing to be aware of is just like maybe yeah brushing under the carpet yeah, I, I certainly agree. I think even in my experience, when I was, you know, following low carb diets at some points or, um, you know, tracking my macros, like I was always focusing on the positives and pushing those uh, negatives that I knew existed under the rug. And I think the reason for that is because you don't want to focus on the negatives. You're trying to like make this thing work and to get the result. And in order to do that, like you, you need to keep convincing yourself. And it's a very you know, um, destructive mentality um, to have towards nutrition. Um, but I can certainly understand, um, you know, from my experience, why people do that. And I guess, you know, in a similar note, why do you think that people, um, you know, develop these fears of food that become so um, ingrained in their belief system that they are truly fearful to eat them? Like I know for myself, I was afraid to eat carbohydrates because I thought it would make me, you know, gain fat. Um, so why is it that people get so afraid of food when it's like really just such an irrational, you know, belief that they have in some cases, like obviously if people are allergic to various things, that fear is fair enough. Um, but for some people it's completely rational and addressing fear is very different to educating people on, you know, sort of the risks and things associated with the fat diet, because there are cases where people are genuinely fearful of food. So um, what are your thoughts on addressing those uh, kind of things? Aiden or Jono, jump in. Jono, you want that one? Uh, yeah, I'll, I think, um, yeah, you're right. And that's where, I mean, empathy throughout this whole process is, is important. But when it comes to a fear of foods, it's extra, like you got to dial the empathy up to 11. Um, and just understanding, like, <clears throat> I don't think it, anything trumps experience when it comes to teaching someone something. So you can read all the things you can be told all the things, but if they've experienced something, that's going to be a much stronger connection for them. And so they've cut carbs, they've noticed benefits and then probably low carb. They've had a binge on carbs at some point. They've gained two kilos overnight with the water weight and glycogen. And that's just reinforcing carbs are bad. Carbs are bad. And so you have to unpack potentially years, 20 years of, you know, that kind of, belief and understanding and, and relationship with that that food so um the i think a few key points around that are firstly to making sure make sure we're constantly acknowledging how the, acknowledging the fear acknowledging that it exists and acknowledging that it is going to it's uncomfortable and difficult to push back against that right just calling it out and so people are aware that it's it's an uncomfortable process to work through um i think really searching for ways to get them to have an experience in the other direction you know, so getting them to increase, you know, to add one carbohydrate rich food or whatever, uh, and then getting a positive experience out of that, we can start to, to sort of chip away at that. Um, but yeah, you have to, it has to be slow and it has to be done with a lot of empathy, a lot of explanation as well. So they're, they're still getting the knowledge, 
but I think we have to work really hard to build the experiences in the other direction um, because no amount of knowledge I think is going to get rid of fear. Yeah, I, I think that's a brilliant way to look at it. Uh, Aiden, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that carbohydrate example was really good because it's kind of like, I think there's two things I'd, I'd attack that from. Like one is education in terms of like using a carbohydrate example, we can educate and be like, well, every gram of glycogen we store, where we store almost every like three mil of water alongside that, that's a normal human response. Literally everybody has that. This therefore means every time you go low carb, you are going to notice quick drops. Every time you add carbs in, you are going to notice a quick increase, even though we don't care about the water weight. Like that's not a bad thing. It's actually not a bad thing at all. Um, but then another thing, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but kind of like graded exposure is how I would also approach it being like, what's the easiest way we can add carbs back in? Like, is it in a pre-workout meal? Is it in a post-workout meal? Is it like all of these kind of things starting off slow and then slowly increasing and ideally giving positive experiences with adding those carbohydrates back in. And that's why I'd start with the pre-workout carbs as an example, because it's like, it's an easy one to get in and it's a easy one that's likely to give a positive experience and kind of unpack some of that fear a little bit because there's a positive experience instead of a negative one and then slowly improving things over time. Yeah, Matt. Yeah, I think both fantastic points from you fellas. Um, like the graded approach thing, um, trying to make sure that it's a positive experience because, you know, a lot of people in, in using carbs again as the example, like their experience of having an isolated carb intake episode is whole pizza next morning, like two kilos heavier. So I think the graded like minimum effective dose type approach and then building up. But I, just a point I wanted to add is respecting autonomy and actually putting the client in the driver's seat. And, and saying, okay, so, you know, well, firstly, asking them, is this something you want to do? Okay, how do you think you can do it? And yeah, pre, pre-exercise, pre I mean, for people for people who fear carbs, pre-exercise carbs is probably going to be a reasonable route in a lot of instances, just because it's like, well, I'm going to burn it. And like, people have this thing of like, I've got to earn my carbs or I've got to utilize them. Because if I don't, if I eat carbs and I don't do something, then I'm, it's just going to be like, it's just going to make me fat. So, you know, I've pre-exercise is, is kind of like potential good starting point. Uh, but yeah, just, re, you know, asking them where, where do you want to start? What do you want to do? And then if they don't have any ideas, then also asking for permission, Hey, you know, um, there are a few approaches that have worked quite well for other clients in the past. You know, would you be interested in, in hearing those ideas and letting me know if, if you're keen on any of them? Yeah. Or you could just create a six figure, fix your diet business mentoring solution business masterclass yeah business masterclass that's what i was good for um i guess i yeah i agree with all of those and i think graded exposure is a is a huge um you know factor in this because you can't just get people to go from no zero carbohydrates to all of a sudden yeah cool here's your macros you've got 350 grams of carbohydrates they're gonna freak out like I've had clients who I've literally had to work from zero carbohydrates and I've just added in 20 grams and then another 10 grams and 50 and just slowly and they got to 80 grams and then we had to pull it back down. Like it's, it can be very, um, very tricky at times. But I guess one thing we haven't really touched on is why fat diets don't work, right? We sort of spoke about at the start why they work because obviously they eliminate a whole food group um, and that can lead to easy weight loss. And then also um, some of the key features and characteristics. We haven't really gone, um, you know, balls deep into why they actually don't work uh, long term. So who wants to attack that first? 
John. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think it's largely overarching all of the fad diet approach. It's just the lack of uh, behavior change. You know, it's the, the lack of, uh, and the lack of flexibility with that dietary approach, right? If you're on the ketogenic diet, you, you can't just sometimes have carbohydrates because that knocks you out. And the reality is that that's not how life works. You know, we have events, we have social outings, we have all of those sorts of things where um, nutrition, your, the nutrition available to you changes. Um, and if that fad diet approach is not flexible enough to encompass that, you either fail your fad diet or you maybe have some pretty distorted pathways through those social outings. And so I think there's, yeah, there's that really extreme rigidity that doesn't take that into account. And then there's, there's no knowledge or no education around longer term behavior change. So, um, they come, a lot of people come into fad diets with that time frame of, I'm just going to do this for eight weeks, or it's a 12 week, this, or it's a, I'm going to do it until I've lost 10 kilos. And they have, they set those time frames, Um, and they're probably successful depending on your definition of success during that time. And then at the end, they're left with two options going back to what they were doing before the fad diet or continuing the fad diet. Um, and neither of which are particularly helpful long-term. So I think it's just that, um, that's the, the main thing. And I think the last point, which we haven't really touched on as well, is the fact that fad diets seem to do this wonderful marketing thing of making you feel like it's your fault if you failed the diet, right? Like it's never like our oh, ketogenic diet's dumb right? or, or whatever, you know, it's that oh, I didn't stick to it. I didn't do it properly. So I'm, it's, it's, you know, I'm the failure. So when they finish that diet and then put on the 10 kilos, it's their fault. And so then that just either is a shame spiral of, well, I'm not going to try again, or I'll go back to the diet that helped me the first time because it's good. I'm the problem. And so it kind of builds all of those, I don't know, negative feedback loops in. Yeah, totally. Mac, anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think a big reason why, like, okay, so firstly, agreeing with, with Jono big time, the rigidity, the all or nothing. Like if you were a hardcore Paul Saladino diet, you know, fearful of seed oils or whatever, you're going to have a hard time here. You know, Ibu is not going to change your freaking Nazi Gorain recipe to grass-fed butter for you. You know, it's just not going to happen. Um, and, and like you guys said, like there's going to be, well, like Jono said, there's going to be instances where what's available to you is going to change and what's feasible and realistic. Like even, you know, ha having whole, whole grain bread here, it's just not going to happen. Like the bread is white bread with often added sugar in it. And it's just like accepting that you don't always need to be perfect, accepting that, um, you know, there should be some flexibility built in, um, except being cool with like a plan B and just doing what you can. Okay, well, I can't have whole meal bread, but I can still eat a ton of fruit. And when you follow a rigid diet that has these food rules, it's all or nothing. And if you can't do it all in, then it's like you're going the complete the other way. And then I think the, the reason why people might feel shame or blame themselves rather than, oh, like Jono said, the keto diet's stupid is because I feel in a lot of instances, the people who promote these diets are like alpha male, like hardcore dudes and people like, I want to be like, you know, Paul Saladino, who's got his shirt off and he's confident or liver King. Who's like this jacked caveman dude with a big luscious beard and like all this sort of stuff where I want to be like Jacob Shepherds, Who's just like an absolute Adonis, like quads of the gods, you know? 
Um, and then when you can't, like these guys are talking about being hardcore and being like, you know, a man and not showing emotion and like just kind of being that alpha, you know, I'm a seven figure, look at me driving my matte black AMG, burly heads, brah, you know, all that shit. Um, I just think like it, you're set up to be made to feel like you're inadequate or, and it's not the diet, it's your lack of grit because you're a soft pussy. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. And the first one, um, before you decided to be a comedian, um, was, <laughs> um, was the fact that it really is a first world problem, isn't it? And it's a, it's a problem that comes from a place of privilege. Like a lot of people who uh, adopted bad diets are clearly privileged in some way. If you can just decide that you're going to cut out carbohydrates because you want to, um, you know, lose some weight. Um, that's a pretty good problem to have compared to, you know, say in Indonesia where it's like, they're just going to eat whatever the fuck's put in front of them, um, you know, that they have access to. Um, the second is I definitely think that, yeah, there's a lot to that um, disappointment in, in the person, in themselves when they're unable to follow a fat diet. And I think a large part of it is the comparison, but I also think it's from the get-go, they've seen success in others and others, you know, have following the diet and it working for them. And they're making it a comparison to all of the people who the diet has worked for as well. Um, because they feel like, Oh, well, it's worked for all these people. That's part of the reason they bought into it in the first place. Cause often they don't just do it because of one person, right? Usually that's the, I guess the gateway to a fad diet is they'll hear one person, whether it's someone with a big influence on social media or their auntie at Christmas lunch, they get interested, they do a little bit of research and then they start looking at, okay, well, what about other people? And there's kind of like that herd mentality um, and they you know, get into an echo chamber from there and everyone's you know raving about it. I think there's a huge um, social component to it where they're comparing to their peers who are also following the fad diet. Um, and usually no one's going to post about their failures with a fad diet online in a group you know, for that fad diet, like there's a paleo group, um, you know, on social media, nobody's going to go on there and say, look, last night I went to, you know, Ben and Jerry's and had some ice cream with my kids. What should I do guys? No one's going to fucking do that because they're just going to get, you know, roasted by the group, right? No one's going to go into a carnivore diet group and say, well, fuck, you know, I actually drink glucose before I work out liver King. Right. So you know, no one's going to do that. So I think there's just that um, you know, echo chamber where people are just, it's all success. It's all positive stories. Nobody's actually going to, you know, share their hardships or, you know, failures in these groups. And I think that's one of the um, the tricky areas when it comes to dealing with this. Aiden, is there anything that you want to add to that? I'd add two things onto that. One is like, I guess, survivorship bias, which is kind of being like, say, say those groups, like if you if you don't have success, you can't just leave and move on and go on to the next thing. Um, if, it, if it's a really bad experience for you, most likely. And the people who remain in these groups are the ones who th they're noticing some benefit and everything like that. So more likely to talk about the positives. And the other thing, just like the social media echo chamber and stuff like that, almost everybody who promotes fad diets has a thing in common, which is they block people who disagree with them. It's such a common thing, which therefore means every time you go through comments, everything is positive, which kind of gives this social proof of being like, this thing works, this person's right, and nobody's ever disagreeing with it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, the the censorship of you know the failures is, is certainly something that um, 
exists or the the people who dissent and disagree with um you know the quote unquote um you know mainstream idea of that group um but yeah in 2023 if you were to give some advice guys we'll go around one at a time to people who are wanting to you know capitalize on that new year new me motivation um yeah and they're potentially looking at getting into a diet what advice would you give um and how would you you know i guess suggest they avoid um following a fad diet uh to, to start things off i would just say okay so assuming the goal is weight loss or fat loss you know what's more important to you is it getting the weight off and being lean for a week or do you want to actually sort of stay there for the rest of your life and live a healthier life and sort of go into the whys and you know the motivations behind that um largely but um i guess trying to i, I would say like the need for habit building slash behavior change. Um, you know, that can be numerous things, like things that can be applicable long-term. So, you know, eating vegetables with most main meals, see most, not all, because that would be all or nothing. Um, like as an example of a habit or behavior that will have long-term applicability, building the confidence to be able to go to plan B and not stress about it. Like, oh, I can't have my Biscoff egg white oats because I'm on holidays. The hotel has eggs on toast and I'm going to get some fruit on the side, you know, protein and plants, like building these sort of habits that can be applied in like a broad applicability that can be applied long-term that aren't just like a short-term quick fix. Like, okay, if you want to do the short-term quick fix thing, like if you want to track your macros for 12 weeks or whatever, you know, lose a half to 1% of your body weight a week, great. But let's just make sure that we're also spending some time and working on some habits that, that are going to benefit you in the long run. That's probably what I would say is, is advice. I like it. Jono? Yeah, I'd be wary of any diet with a name unless it's the Mediterranean diet. That's probably the first thing. Um, I think the second thing as well is, yeah, reflecting on all of the other approaches you've tried in the past um, that haven't worked, right? If they had worked, you wouldn't be thinking about what you're gonna do in the new year. So reflecting on what those approaches have been, reflecting on the things that they share, what, you know, the things they have in common, um, because that can also leave clues as to the sorts of patterns in the past that haven't served you um and then really kind of if you've tried multiple things and they haven't worked maybe sitting down and having a strong talk with yourself about like i need to think about doing this for 12 months not 12 weeks um and accepting that and understanding that and almost embracing that you know we're playing the long game um i don't you know like we said if let's assume weight loss is, is the example i don't really care how much weight someone loses in 12 weeks if in 12 more weeks they've they've put it all back on you know um and something i hear a lot is like fast forward five years from now let's say that you've lost the weight that you wanted to lose and you've kept it off you're not going to look bad on back on that and be annoyed that it took you 12 months instead of 12 weeks you're just going to be happy that it's gone right that's the that's the key area so really intentionally slowing things down and accepting that it's going to be a bit of a slower process um and then probably the last thing is and then pick one behavior and nail that for like three weeks first don't try and change 20 things in one go we know we've seen it time and time again with ourselves with our friends and family and our clients like that never works you might have 20 things that you want to improve we probably all do write them down 
rank them in order of bang for your buck and start with number one and don't move on until number one is ingrained. Like that's, those are a few tips that I would use. Yeah, I really like that. Aiden. I'm just going to be echoing the others, hey? So like I, I very much think long-term and a question I ask myself a lot when it comes to food, exercise, whatever, is what is the type of life I want to lead and how does food fit into that? Um, there's... This is not a personal example. I don't like baking, but say I liked baking, right? And it's something that I really valued. It was really important to me. I liked baking cookies and I also liked eating those. I would think about my life on a year long time frame and kind of be like, where makes sense to bake most? Where makes sense to bake less? How does, say I want to do an eight week approach or like a fat loss phase or whatever it is, and then maintain for the rest or whatever. Do I bake less during that phase? Like the answer is probably not zero. It's probably not not baking ever. Maybe it is less during that phase, but I also need to be thinking long-term enough to be like, okay, what's the transition out of that phase? And how do I include this thing that I really value enough over the course of the year and stuff like that? So it's like, I on the one hand, I, I preach sustainability and being like, we shouldn't make heaps of changes that we wouldn't want to do for the rest of our lives and stuff like that. But say we we're going to disregard that and we we're going to be like, oh, I do want to be a bit more aggressive for this kind of eight-week phase or something like that. I think you need to plan out and be like, what is something that I can do realistically for this eight-week phase? And also, how does that fit into my longer time frame so that I don't make a decision that is detrimental to the life I want to lead long-term? Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think um, having a sliding scale when it comes to certain behaviors, um, you know, is really useful uh, concept because that avoids the all or nothing and it helps us upregulate and downregulate, you know, the things that we need to do or want to do, um, depending on specific situations, goals, and the context that we're in. Um, but I guess a question I'll, I'll um, ask you, Aiden, is, you know, with the new year, there's a lot of motivation, right? And um, as Jono mentioned, we have you know, probably it's probably a good idea and wise to focus on one behavior at a time and not to try and overhaul your life. But the issue a lot of people face in the new year is they have a little bit more time off, right? Because they're yeah. on holidays, right? They're excited. They've got more motivation. So they're trying to change everything at once to get the ball rolling. Um, how would you advise people to sort of temper that motivation, right? Because it's pretty overwhelming. Like I even know myself, like new year, it's like, there's just excitement. There's just... Mm you know, a lot of drive to, to improve everything and all at once. Um, so how, how would you advise people to temper that motivation to want to change numerous things? Um, and how can they direct that to only one thing? Yeah, I, I like to look at that from other perspectives outside of nutrition and bring that back in. I'm a business owner. I start the new year after a holiday, super motivated to get into everything, right? But looking at it from the business perspective, it's like, damn, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Like I'm going to be doing this for a long time. And there's only so much I can achieve in a short time frame, And I have to keep repeating these habits week in, week out, week in, week out, year on, year on, year to get to where I want to be. And the same kind of thing with nutrition, health, fitness, everything like that. It, it is a lifelong pursuit. Ideally, we're caring about this forever, really. Um, and although we can achieve great things with motivation and short bursts and stuff like that, we still have to be doing stuff the rest of the year. So it's like, I, I would focus on that first phase of motivation getting results and stuff like that, but also doing it in a way that sets you up for the long-term, which often means refining your focus to the things that are moving the needle and matter long-term too. Yep. Awesome. Mac, what would your advice be? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would I would definitely echo the, the other fellas. Chill out. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Just, you know, um, but also like taking advantage of that motivation, I don't think that's a negative thing. And 
I think Aiden's actually mm. said this before very well on social media is, you know, it doesn't need to be sustainable. What you're doing right now doesn't need to be sustainable forever. So if you want to do like an eight week thing, cool, awesome. But like Aiden said, um, you know, think about, well, really bring it back to what do you want from life? And, you know, understanding that food should enhance your existence and the existence that you want is individual. So kind of not losing sight of that. Um, and then, like I said before, making sure that there is an inbuilt focus on not just following something blindly, but actually seeking at building behaviors, um, changing habits, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, like, no, not trying to overwhelm yourself. You know, like uh, Jono said, every couple of weeks, you, you know, you, you focus on one thing, you have to be conscious about implementing it and then it becomes autonomous. Great. Move on to the next. And sort of like, this is that habit building thing, um, which, you know, has that sort of long-term applicability. And it's so rewarding. Like I get such a kick out of clients who, uh, who, you know, are sort of going down more of a habit building approach and, you know, they've got a bunch of habits and they're just slowly building them over time. And, you know, we use a platform like with a traffic light system for like habit building. We sometimes use it. And when you just see like oranges and reds for certain habits and then it, over time, it just becomes like more green and they're like, oh, this is just what I do. And it's easy. Like, it's just, for me, it, that's where the gold lies as far as like practitioner reward. You know, a lot of people I feel anyway, are like, oh, a hectic before and after photo, mate, it, like looks hectic. Like for me, the, the real like passion, the, the, the joy, comes from seeing things like that you know so i i really like um what the fellas mentioned before and i'm definitely in agreement with that awesome john and this was obviously uh, your advice initially was for people to just focus on one behavior at time so when they're super <laughs> motivated um how do yeah. you go about keeping them from trying to change multiple different things it is a tricky one because um like motivation you do want to use it you want to capitalize it you don't want to be the killjoy of like you know, if someone's super excited, just like, no, sit down. We're just doing one thing. I think from a practitioner perspective, I would view it as we want to capitalize that motivation. Yep. We can do maybe a couple of extra things, but, and, and I think like, like Mac mentioned with the, having a, maybe a shorter time frame for the beginning of that year, that eight week focus, that eight week push or sprint or whatever is okay. And as a practitioner, I'd be supporting them in that. And also just trying to like sneak in and let's eat veggies at most meals. Like let's have one to two pieces of fruit a day. So we're still doing the a bit more aggressive approach that's time-based capitalizing on that motivation. But within that, we're still building those like intrinsic habits that don't change regardless of what you're doing, whether you're doing an aggressive approach or a maintenance approach. I still want veggies at most meals. I still want, you know, you're hitting those targets. So yeah, I'd probably, I'd be a little more lenient at the beginning of the year with like, oh yeah, cool. Let's go a little bit more all in, but let's, also try and let's go all in but on the building on a foundation of habits that are going to last you for the rest of your life you know yeah, yeah. i like that i guess one thing um you know i want to bring up before we wrap things up fellas is that despite our best efforts to obviously help people with their nutrition um, and to make these improvements in their approach over time um, the reality is like we're facing an obesity epidemic and you know body weight's just increasing uh, over time. And the reality is a lot of that weight gain comes from the festive season and uh, people don't lose it year on year. And that's where, uh, you know, we typically see increase in body weight um, over the lifespan. 
Um, so what is it that people are doing wrong, you know, during the year when they're trying to diet or come out of these diets? Cause we know start of the year, they go into a diet that whether it's fad diet or not, they'll go in, um, and attack it. Uh, what are they doing wrong? Um, you know, when they come out of these diets or when they, um, you know, transition into the holiday period, like where are people going wrong? That's leading to, um, you know, just increase in body weight um, over time. I know that's a very loaded question, but I think it sort of ties everything up as to why people are, you know, trying fat diets in the new year uh, because they're gaining weight over Christmas, but then we're just we're seeing this like, you know, snowball um, over time. So any thoughts on that? I don't want to have the audacity to say where where are people going wrong, but I, I, will, I will highlight one place that I think people are going wrong. So I, I think one place is even just planning transition phases out of any dieting block, like what, whatever your fat loss approach or anything is like that. By definition, a calorie deficit is different to maintenance calories, whether you track it or not or whatever. So if you are aiming for a fat loss phase, that is a little bit different to what you want to be doing at the end and maintaining. The habits will be a little bit different and everything like that too. And I think almost everyone puts heaps of emphasis on what am I doing during the fat loss phase and not nearly the same amount of effort and thought and intensity into what am I going to do in the next step after that? So even if it is successful, it's like, well, what do we do after? Because ideally the maintenance phase is the more important aspect. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that's a huge factor is that post-diet transition. Mac? Yeah, I definitely echo that. Um, and I'll add a few points. So people dieting right up to Christmas day. Um, or trying to diet hmm. through the months of December. Like, you know, I'm not going to say that everyone, like everyone should stop dieting because there are probably some people out there who, who you know, it aligns with whatever their values and, you know, what they're doing and what have you. Like Brandon Kempter, I'm not going to say to him, mate, you're going to have to put that comp prep on, on, on the maintenance burner for the month of December, you know, like obviously it's his everything. He's not going to have a problem with it. Anyway, um, yeah, I think dieting right up to, like Christmas day and not actually having a phase where you can eat at maintenance, like a transition phase, um, letting things normalize, establishing what maintenance looks and feels like for you, because, you know, also sort of um, normalizing what might be an increased food focus at the end of a dieting. So I'm bringing that down to baseline. Um, but I think the root of this really like is built for me on the all or nothing. Like I'm personally someone who has had a horrific, like, I guess, track record with Christmases. And it's probably the only, only like the last couple of years where I feel like I've enjoyed it and, you know, eaten in a way that enhances the experience. Um, and, you know, previously it's just been like massive amounts of eating, lots of guilt, lots of despair, lots of sadness um, and all those sort of negative things. And, and it comes to, I feel like the root of it is the all or nothing, you know, and when you have fad diets, like leaking, leaking it, linking it back to the topic of today when you have rigid food rules when it's all or nothing about them you know you're setting yourself up for this kind of like excessive overindulging and obviously indulging is fine through the holiday period it's pretty normal but when it gets to a point where it's not enhancing your experience or your enjoyment it's not contributing positively you know you're going past that diminishing returns um, you know, that's when I feel it, it becomes undesirable and, um, yeah, being all or nothing, I feel like is really the crux of, of where a lot of people's sources of struggles or, or like discrepancy between control phases and like, say the holiday phase really is, is built from. Yeah. Awesome. I, really, I yeah, really like that. 
giant. Yeah, I 100% agree with the the all or nothing. I think that's probably the biggest um, thorn in people's sides during this time of year because um, <clears throat> like everyone focuses on eating too much at parties. How do I, how should I eat it on Christmas day and at my work Christmas event and things like that. And they forget like there's 93 other meals in December, you know, um, or 90, you know, yeah. So, but because of those events being all they kind of, or like nothing, I guess, you know, they're, um, they just kind of carry that approach through, you know, for that three weeks of December, their normal meal structure, their normal meal timing, the types of foods they would typically eat just disappear for three whole weeks rather than eating kind of your regular meals and then eating more at a party and then eating your regular meals with some extra dessert because you had leftovers or like it's rather than your normal structure plus something it's just this whole new beast that looks completely different to how you eat for the other you know 11 months of the year um and i think that definitely can cause the holidays to have a, a bigger impact than they need to for sure for sure well boys i think that was a very very useful discussion i'm sure other listeners will take a lot from that but before we end things uh we're gonna go around and i would love to hear one embarrassing uh, story <clears throat> or experience um, with a fad diet or uh, some kind of fad diet behavior. So Aiden, I, feel like start... have one. I feel like you're not going to have one. No, no, no. So I, I don't have many, actually. That's actually good. I, I've actually been blessed with a really good relationship with food and everything. Hey, but um, my, my first one, my only one really is um, the If It Fits Your Macros example, right? It's funny that this is the fad diet one. Um, I had a great experience with If It Fits Your Macros. Um, I think it improved my relationship with food in a way. Um, before that, I, I wouldn't say I was orthorexic or anything like that. I just avoided sugar and stuff like that because I thought it was better. Um, but If It Fits Your Macros, I thought the numbers mattered. I thought that I had to hit certain carbon fat targets and stuff like that. And I remember one time, I was 10 grams short of my fat target. I was still living at home. I was 17 years old. So all my food was supplied by my parents and 10 grams short of the fat target. I look back now, I'm like, I could have eaten anything. Could have eaten anything. Actually, the 10 grams didn't even matter. At the time though, I was like, I'm going to get jacked if I have this 10 grams of fat. So I poured out some olive oil and drank some straight olive oil. <laughs> Love it. That's great. Were you the kind of guy who got so granular with the macros, you even tracked like your fiber intake and got into micro? Nah, 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 not at all. Hey, I wasn't even like, I, I was even fine with like not weighing stuff out and just like guessing and stuff like that. But um, that was just one example where I was like, nah, olive oil is going to make me jacked. You're just like a normal person then. Screw you. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> all of us have had to walk down some kind of shitty disordered eating pathway and here you are just having like a normal healthy relationship with food <laughs> Mac, Mac I'm curious to hear this I reckon you would have done some absolutely whack shit in your brain. oh yeah oh yeah let me tell you Aiden mate I'm like this guy lucky as hell never caught the <laughs> shit okay so I once worked with a personal trainer from the UK online who was one of those like personal trainers who's decides that he's going to be a gut health functional medicine type dude. Um, and, you know, I was prescribed, uh, you know, grapefruit pre-exercise with coconut water, um, ox bile supplements, like just all these weird obscure supplements. I had to have certain teas with different meals. So like, you know, breakfast was like white fish with like 
um, rocket and I had to have like white tea with that meal. And then like another meal, I had to have like a black tea or something with this other meal and it had to be like pistachios. But the biggest thing from memory was duck, uh, sorry, chicken eggs, no good, like terrible for you. So I had to have duck eggs. Okay, it had to be duck eggs. And this was the meal plan, duck eggs. So at the gym, I was working at the time because this is when I was like, you know, um, a receptionist at this Poliquinest gym. So one of the clients of the owner went to Patty's markets and bought me a packet of duck eggs because I couldn't find them anywhere because I was stressing about adhering to the recommendations of this individual. And yeah, it, I wasn't allowed to have chicken eggs. It had to be duck eggs. And it was like going to the nth degree to get them. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I like that. The duck eggs is, is you know, yeah, the teas. Was one of the teas uh, oolong tea or something like that? Oh, I don't think so. Actually, um, oolong tea is for um, like, it's basically like a laxative, I believe. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I used to have to have that um, before bodybuilding shows <laughs> when I had some. Yeah. Coke. yeah. <laughs> there was like licorice tea, white tea, green tea. Like I had an assortment of teas in the house and this is when I was living at home as well. And like, my mom was just like, you know, I used to be afraid of like, my dad used to spray Mortine for the mosquitoes. I used to spray the Mortine and I'd be like, my hamstrings are going to get fat. Xeno estrogens, man. Like, and my mom was just like, oh my God. My mom talks to me about it now. And she was like mortified. Um, yeah. She's a concerned parent. My, my dad was the exact same when I was doing bodybuilding. He, um, he used to say to me, Jake, why are you doing this shit? This shit's not not good. You know, you look sick. You know, I want my son back. Like, okay, this is embarrassing. This isn't my food story. And John, I'll let you continue. But yeah, like my dad was concerned, right? And we actually, I moved out of the family ho house because my dad put olive oil on my chicken. I'm not even fucking. <laughs> I, I, you know, uh... like, so my parents were disintegrated. <laughs> And obviously like a lot of, you know, tension, emotions running high at the time. Um, and I just turned like 18. So I'm like, you know, becoming a man and, you know, trying to you know, test out, you know, where I stand with my dad and things like this. And um, so anyway, he's said he'll cook my chicken, cooks my chicken. And I said, you know, explicitly multiple times, no olive oil. Yeah. Cause I was that, I used to eat like just a roast chicken, just a breast. That was lunch. Um, anyway, he serves me a chicken. When you've just had plain chicken for fucking 12 months with no olive oil and it's cooked in olive oil, you can tell the difference, right? Like, and I, I said, dad, this is cooked in olive oil. And he's like, oh, no, it's not. No, no, it's not. He goes, just shut up and eat it. And we had this big blue, packed my bags, went to mom's and I actually never lived with my dad after that day. Oh, that is gnarly. Jeez. Oh, yep. This is the consequences of fad diets. Like this, this is, is like how deep it can go. Yeah, it can. Like, it's bad. It can really fuck you up. Like, yeah. I've missed out on social, you know, situations. Like, I got to fucking, you know, I could write a book on the stupid stories and situations I was in with my fucking diet. Um, but anyway, I just had to add that in there with the uh, the duck eggs. Oh, no, Ali. Jono, you're up. Jeez. Um, I was just, that frustrates me, though, when people are like, oh, why are you picking on fat diet? Why are you picking on this person? Why are you being so mean? It's harmless. They're getting good results. It's like you don't understand the long-lasting consequences that this seemingly innocuous diet can have. But anyway, um, I'm pretty lucky. I Look, I'm glad Aiden threw himself in first and because I'm the same. I've, I've been very fortunate to have 
uh, parents who've always cultivated a love of food, a love of cooking and, and all of those sorts of things. I'd say probably my, the biggest idiotic, idiotic thing I did was back before I, like I literally first year of nutrition undergrad, um, is the first year of like actually proper training as well. I'd never done weights or anything before that. And, uh, T nation was the Bible. And so I was getting all of my, I was only training with kettlebells because they are far superior to dumbbells and barbells. Um, and I was only doing 20 minutes because if you did any longer, your cortisol would spike and that would cause, you know, belly fat gain and things like that. But I was also making sure that I had my shake with L-carnitine, two scoops of whey and a massive like 60 grams of glucose or dextrose um, <clears throat> to intra during my 20 minute kettlebell workout to make, it was all the like, poliquin christian Thibodeau, like yeah and the and search like anyway so that and l-carnitine is the most disgusting like okay. i my wife girlfriend at the time my wife was like you you have to stop taking this like i didn't smell i've heard that that can happen i didn't but every time i'd like blend it up she'd be like that's you you have to have that out of the house so i've got a ripping story on L-carnitine. i've got a ripping one too okay <laughs> so we'll share our carnitine stories so back when uh yes bodybuilding is a really perverse subculture right it's like people have no idea until they're actually in it how fucking weird and bizarre mm. it can be right so i was in a contest prep this is while i was living with my dad um so just before um actually no it was after i'd moved out with my dad me and my dad went down on a holiday uh, for a weekend, uh, a week out from my uh, bodybuilding show. So he came down and again, we had a fight because he was cooking toast and I can smell the toast. And I was like, dad, can you not cook in here? I'm literally a week out. I'm starving. And like my senses are so high. Anyway, I'd finished all my, you know, macros, my meals for the day. And it was like six o'clock because I was on like 1400, 1500 calories, fucking, you know, tired, exhausted. And the only thing that I could eat was, um, salary because like it was the only thing that i had like 20 calories left so i'm having my salary and i used to have my salary uh, and pour alcarnitine on it because it kind of like had this vinegary taste so i used to eat that like as a regular meal to get my alcarnitine in and to obviously eat a low calorie fucking food and i tell you what looking back on that that's the most disgusting thing i've ever done diet taste buds oh my god but it tasted good at the time it tasted yeah. good and again, my dad was very concerned. He's like, what are you doing? Just have a slice of fucking bread. I'm like, yeah, you don't get it. <laughs> you know, I'm burning fat here. <laughs> that's so gnarly. Like that's, that's even worse than the people who dip like cucumbers in stevia. <laughs> have you seen that? Oh, oh, I haven't seen that, but it makes uh, sense. And they're like, oh, it's delicious. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, you're fucked. Um, for me, oh, speaking of Alcante, I, yeah, I, I went through a phase where... I had 30 grams of leucine post-exercise. What? Yeah. 30 grams of leucine, like the supplement, just leucine. And it's the most chalkiest thing ever. That has to so top L-carnitine. That yeah. has to top L-carnitine. 30 grams of the stuff. Where, where that was the poliquin thing. What water? Sorry? You just put it into water or with a protein shake? Yeah. Literally just a, no, literally just a shaker bottle, water, L-carnitine, uh, not L-carnitine, leucine. 30 grams. That's a lot. That would have tasted horrible. It was so bad. That was my crazy one. Anyhow. Yeah. I feel like me and Matt are the only ones here with uh, really oh, We had a rough run. Food stories. Yeah, I used to literally for lunch. My dad has photos of me um, sitting there in like my stringer singlet while I was training, just eating a whole roast chicken. 
because I wouldn't eat carbs. I'd just eat the roast chicken. No skin, of course. Um, you know, I'm healthy like that at that point. Um, but yeah, I used to eat a whole roast chicken. Fuck, what else did I used to do? I used to, I did the whole um, meat and nuts for breakfast. I did that. <laughs> yeah, that I, was, I did that. Grass cooked in grass fed butter. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. yeah. My mum used, used to be like, Jacob, can you not cook this kangaroo at eight o'clock in the morning? Right, I used to cook fucking like kangaroo meat and it stinks out the house. And I'd have it with some almonds. It was just, yeah, it was gross. I'm disappointed in you guys. You guys should have yeah, had you guys. experience. <laughs> Sounds what like we've really missed out. Yeah. yeah. 2023, Aiden, you and I, we should have uh, fad diet year. Yeah, yeah, I'll take off bodybuilding. <laughs> Sounds fun. I implore you guys to uh, to try celery with L-carnitine. Just, give me, Just sacrifice yourself. I'm not doing that. Let me know, yourself. Doing that. I'm <laughs> let me know how, let me know how you go. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you very much for your time. Uh, love talking to you both. Um, obviously, Mackenzie, I have to talk to you uh, as a function of our business agreement. So, <laughs> moderately enjoyable. <laughs> uh, but, guys, thank you very much. Um, if uh, you can let listeners know where to find you, Aiden. Uh, so, I have a podcast myself. So, I've got the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. And on Instagram, I am Aiden underscore the underscore dietitian. Awesome. Jono. Cool. Uh, I am at Jono Steedman on Instagram. Um, website is bitemenutrition.com.au. Uh, I also have a podcast, but it's sporadic, but it's the Bite Me Nutrition podcast. So we, I think we, do we all have a podcast? Yeah. So yes. it's been the, yes. it's been the year or the a couple of years for podcasts. Hey, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Just, yeah. just one thing to the listeners, just be careful with Jono. Just make sure you don't ask him questions about creatine monohydrate. <laughs> Just make sure you're gonna have to explain that one to me off there. Mac, where can people find you? Oh, uh, me, uh, at Mackenzie Baker underscore at the oh. end, uh, Macabolic Podcast. Um, yeah, I reckon that's pretty much it. You know, you got Fortitude Nutrition Coaching, and then you got the JPS Education Portal, that's another modality which will be very exciting coming up in 2023. Yeah, guys, if you're listening to this, it's 2023. Happy New Year, and we'll speak to you all next time. Easy. All right.